How was everybody? <laughs> Those of us that made it who aren't too sick or out of town. So uh, I had both my girls get the flu over Christmas. Yep. And I did not get the flu. I got my flu shot, but I got some kind of crud going on. So I got these really tasty uh, Vapo Cool Vicks uh, cough drops. It tastes like if you got that Vicks, Vicks Vapor Rub and scooped it out and just ate it. <laughs> so that's what I got going on in my mouth right now. So um, it's pretty intense. So bear with me. If I cough a little bit, I'll, I'll try to mute myself and um, hopefully not be too much of an annoyance. So we're starting a new book of the Bible this week. <clears throat> if you've never been here before, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. We're going to do three weeks on the book of Malachi, which is in the Old Testament at the very, very back. If you have a Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And the reason why we chose this is we're about to do the book of Matthew. So this sets up the book of Matthew pretty well. In fact, talks about, hints about Christ several times in this Old Testament book. But before I jump into that, I want to give you a little bit of history on the book of Malachi, and it's not in your notes, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through a couple of slides, give you some history over this book, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into the chapter, and that's where your, your notes will pick up that you guys have in your hand. What we're gonna talk about today, though, is this. And um, Christmas is over, so a little bit of, of sass and hellfire and brimstone is gonna come out today because we've, you know, we've gotten over the holidays. So, um, but, <laughs> amen. But what we're gonna talk about today is this that we cannot expect a return on what we have never deposited. We're gonna talk about that in, in regards to our Christian walk, that we keep expecting stuff out of our walk with God, but if we've never invested in our walk with God or our relationship with God, we can't really expect to get too much out of that. That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. But before I get into that, let me give you a little bit of history. So the author of the book of Malachi, we know virtually nothing about this guy. We know that his name might have been Malachi, so we don't even know if that was his name. The reason why we don't know for sure is the word Malachi means messenger of God. So some people believe that Malachi wasn't the author's name, but it was the title given to this individual. He was a messenger of God. Of course, like the rest of the Bible, the real author of this book is God himself. But Malachi is interesting because about 90% of it is literally God speaking through Malachi. So 47 of the 55 verses we're going to cover in the next couple of weeks is straight from the mouth of God. So it's a very unique book in the fact that it's almost God speaking the entire time, which is pretty fascinating. It was written somewhere in the neighborhood of about 458 to 430 BC. If you've read the Old Testament, uh, the book of Nehemiah, it was written in about the same time period when Nehemiah was governor. Uh, fun story about the book of Nehemiah. I really wanted to teach it at the beginning of 2019. I was like, man, that'd be a fun book. I've never taught it. It's relatively short. I think it's 11 chapters, somewhere in that neighborhood. But that's when all the talk about the wall being built and everyone was mad at each other. And it's a book of the Bible about building a wall. So I'm like, I'm just going to wait on that. We'll do that at another time. So uh, <laughs> paused on that. The book of Malachi is called an oracle for you Matrix fans. And all that means is it's a prophecy given to somebody to share to a nation. So it's a prophecy from God given to usually you know, a prophet who shares it with a nation, and they call that an oracle. And it's written in kind of a question-answer format. So it's, it's, it's almost like a conversation. God will say something, the people will ask a question, God will respond. It goes back and forth. It's very, very interesting. And there's actually three references to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. 
As we get into chapter three, there's a reference there, and then there's two references in chapter four where it talks about Jesus Christ, the coming savior, the one that's gonna pave the way, which was John the Baptist, and so it hints, and so it leads very nicely into the book of Matthew that we'll get into a little bit later, okay? Now, the purpose of this book, and this is where it's gonna relate to us a lot, is the nation at this time, when Malachi was written, the nation of Israel, was in a state of financial instability, religious skepticism, and personal discouragement or disappointment. People had turned from God, and if they still believed and followed him, well, kind of followed him, they had started to blame him. You're the reason why all these bad things are happening to us. Not only were people turning on God, they were turning on each other. Marriages were falling apart, families were falling apart, business ethics were bad, people were deceitful and lying to each other and taking advantage of each other. So not only did people not love God, people were not loving each other either. But the main offenses weren't business or relational. The main offenses were spiritual. And in chapter one, God is going to hammer on pastors, right? So, you know, you can take some comfort in that. He's gonna hammer on pastors, and the offerings that the churches were giving or the synagogues were giving were either being tainted, they were being withheld, uh, the church was allowing non-believers to marry believers, which was not God's intention, the temples were being desecrated, the people were very spiritually lethargic, they were apathetic to their faith. During this time, this sounds a lot like Southern Christianity, they had built a big, beautiful, expensive temple, but the city around the temple was crumbling. Sound familiar, right? We have all these big monstrosity churches that are worth tens of millions of dollars, but there's so much in the community that's not being met. That was going on at that time. And we're gonna read a lot about rebellion. We're gonna read a lot about the hatred of God's commands. But overall, the book of Malachi is a positive book. You have to look at it a little bit closely to get the positivity out of it. But we're reminded that God is on the throne. We're reminded that God loves his people, even if his people say no. God still loves his people. So the book of Malachi is simply this. It's a warning. It's a warning for us to turn. Turn away from our selfishness and our sin and what we want to do and turn back towards God. And if we do that, we'll be okay, not just as individuals, but as a people. So that's what this is about, okay? It's about repentance. It's about turning back to what is right. So you should have received a notes handout when you walked in, either side, has everything from here on out that I'm gonna say will be in that notes handout. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a copy of the Bible, uh, go to the back of the Old Testament. It is the very last book of the Old Testament, very, very short book of the Bible, but very, very hard-hitting, very impactful. And then if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app has everything on there, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We will jump into this. We'll go through it relatively quick, and... Um, We'll let you guys kind of get on and enjoy your day, okay? All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Pray that you keep your hand on us this morning. God, I love this church. I love the people in this church. Father, I know that you love the people in this church. God, we pray not only that you bless us as a congregation, we pray that you bless every congregation in our city, our county, churches that we work with all over the nation, churches that we work with outside of this country, God, we pray for the nonprofits that we work with, and we pray, God, that everything we do today, that it honors you and blesses you, God, and blesses your kingdom. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be gracious and merciful with us today, God. Keep your hand on my throat, God, as I talk, and I pray that everything that comes out of my throat, God, is uh, what you want to be said. 
and that it edifies this church. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Malachi writes, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. So when it says this is a pronouncement, this was a message given to Malachi from God to speak to a nation. More than likely, this was probably preached at like a festival or one of the big Jewish feasts. So it would have been in front of a lot of people, in front of the prominent people. And the word pronouncement literally means a burden. Why is it called a burden? Imagine if you were the human chosen by God to tell a nation that they sucked, right? Imagine if you were that person. That would be like a burden. It would be a very heavy thing to have to tell everyone that they're not living the way that they're supposed to be living and they need to turn back to God. Now it's important to remember this is not Malachi's opinion. Malachi is simply relating to the people what God has told him. So it's not Malachi's opinion, it's God's opinion. Like I said earlier, this was a very rough time for the Jewish people. They were struggling financially because of foreign nations were kind of dominating economically and, and even in battle. The people were discouraged because they didn't have kind of a national identity. They felt insignificant. And Malachi was sent to tell them that a lot of their troubles came because they did not have a proper relationship with God. Now, we got to be careful with this. Not every time that we have struggles in life is it because we don't have a good relationship with God. We can have a fantastic relationship with God and we're still gonna have struggles because it rains on the good and the bad, right? Because things just happen. Sometimes bad things happen to even the best people. But a lot of the issues that we go through in life is because we're not living the way we're supposed to be living. It happens financially, it happens relationally, it happens in business ethics, it happens in all kinds of things. When we deviate from the way God wants us to live, we get in trouble. That's why God has all these rules that we don't like to follow. It's because God wants to protect us and keep us safe and, and wants us to have the best life we can possibly have. And when we deviate from those things, life is tough, right? It gets even harder. So not all of our struggles are because of our lack of relationship, but a lot are. So we have to balance that and we have to think about that. Now the book of Malachi is a very strategic book. There's kind of six major sections that kind of go on this question answer thing. And the first big question is, God says, I've loved you. And the people say, how have you loved us? Now when God says, I've loved you, he means that both in the past, that throughout your life I've loved you, and I love you right now. Even though you're being a punk, is what God was saying, and you're being rebellious, I still love you. So I've loved you in the past, and I love you even now in the current state that you're in. But just like the people back then, we still do this to God, right? God, I know you've done stuff for me, but what have you done for me lately? The Jewish people had been delivered. They had seen miraculous things happen. They were in the promised land during this time. But just like we often do, we can't see around our present circumstances sometimes. 
We have one bad week, and it doesn't matter that God's been blessing Corey for 40 years. I have one bad week, and I'm like, God, where are you at, right? What are you doing up there? And what happens is we become entitled, and we get afraid, and it causes us to ask really stupid questions. God, what have you ever done for me? I think it's going to be funny when we get to heaven and God shows us just how much he's done for us that we've never realized. Corey, you should have been dead 10,000 times, right? But I saved you here and here and here and here and here. And I'm, wow, you did a lot more for me than I ever realized. God could have shown the Jewish people a million things he had done for them, right? He delivered four million of them out of Egypt. So he could have shown them four million things right there. But instead he showed them one big thing. He says, I chose you. God had parted the Red Sea. God had parted the Jordan River. God sent food from heaven. God delivered water from a rock. God did all kinds of crazy, enormous miracles for these people. But above all those miracles, the thing that was the most important is God had chosen them. And God's choosing the descendants of Jacob over the descendants of Esau doesn't mean that God didn't love Esau's descendants. It means that he chose the Jewish people to spread his love across the entire world. That's what happens in the book of Acts. It starts in Israel with the Jewish people, and they break out and they go to the entire world and share the gospel to the entire world. God loves everyone, but he chose the Jewish people to be the starting point of how to communicate his love to the entire world. But we come across a very difficult passage. There's a bunch of podunk inbred rednecks called Westboro Baptist Church that uses this passage as an excuse to hate people that they don't agree with. And so people can take the scriptures and twist them and turn them to say things that they don't mean. But the Bible says that God hated Esau. Now that's a tough one to grapple with. God hated him? If you actually get into what that Jewish word means, it means that he loved them less. It's not that he actually hated them in the way that we know hatred. It means that God was sovereign. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter nine. If you get into Romans chapter nine, verse 13, it shows that his choosing of Jacob over Esau, it it, it shows that God had a plan and he understood what he was doing. But more than likely, this reference is God not choosing Esau and the descendants which were the Edomites. It's not a literal hatred as we know it today. That's why we have to dig a little bit. That's why we have to read a little bit. That's why we have to cross-reference and take things into context, or we can take the Bible way out of context, and you start a little cult in Nebraska or wherever they are, and you end up really tainting the name of Jesus Christ, okay? I'm a little sick, so some sass is gonna come up today, all right, okay? (laughs) Sorry. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. So the descendants of Esau were rebellious. They were arrogant, they were greedy, they were violent, they were prideful to the point that they thought that they could oppose God, build up their own cities, build up their own infrastructures, and they would be okay without God's help. In response to this defiance, 
God says, whatever you build, I'm just going to tear it down. You're a wicked nation, and I'm gonna tear it down. I'm not going to let it exist. And in verse four, God uses a very emphatic they and I. What they build, I will tear down. And what that shows is, even if all humanity were to mount a, a, a front against God, it doesn't matter. God is more powerful. He is the creator. We must remember, and I think we forget this a lot as Christians, we forget who he is and who we are. He is the creator God, we are the creation, and if there's nothing else apart from that, that is enough reason to respect and revere and worship God, right? He is the creator. And in our current culture, we have forgotten that. We've become so irreverent and so disrespectful that we treat God like he's like one of our bros. He's not one of our bros. He's the king of the universe that sits on the throne. And if you read Revelation chapter four, like that should humble us a little bit. That should be your homework tonight. Revelation chapter four. Whenever we think of Jesus as some Rastafarian pot-smoking hippie, he's not. He is the God that spoke everything into existence and he's gonna do it again, according to the book of Revelation, and create a whole new earth and a whole new universe just like that. That kind of God deserves respect, right? A little bit of reverence. So the prophecy about the Edomites has actually come true. When Malachi says that these people will be cursed forever, go back and study history. The media Persian empire has fallen and has never rebuilt. It has been in ruins for 3,000 years. Google the ruins of Petra, right? That was the media Persian empire. They have laid in waste and they have never rebuilt those cities. So the lesson for the Jewish people in this was that God shows them mercy by taking care of their enemies and giving them a chance to turn and repent and come back to God. But that all hinges on humility. Here's where we struggle. You and I, in the culture we live in, in the United States, and I'm not trying to dog on it, but it's just where we are right now. We live in an extremely irreverent and arrogant culture that often fails to see anything greater than themselves. There was a British historian that was alive about 100 years ago, and his name escapes me right now. I've used him in some of my studies before. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 27 human civilizations that have existed since we know humans have existed. Of those 25 or 27, whatever it is, civilizations, the first civilization to ever accept atheism, the fact that there is no God, right? The first ones to ever accept that was the Western civilization. It's us, right? The Western world. We are the first generation, the first civilization of people who find not believing in a God a viable option. That means that we are probably the most arrogant people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. We're the first ones to say there is nothing bigger than us. Nothing bigger than us. We are our own gods. And if we fail to choose humility over pride, we will not only miss the love of God and the blessings of God, but the Bible says that all of our endeavors will eventually crumble to what God wants to do. And if you go back to the book of Revelation, you're gonna see he's gonna level all the great cities and all the great things that humanity has tried to produce. He's gonna level all those things. They will all fall to him. Okay, all right. God says a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? 
If I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to your priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? God says, by presenting defiled food on my altar, how have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, isn't that wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, isn't that wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asks the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show you, will he show any of your favor, of any of you favor? I wish that you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. We live in a culture where it's never our fault, right? It's my parents' fault. It's Donald Trump's fault. It's your fault. It's my pastor's fault. It's everyone's fault except for my fault. So this section deals with the troublesome response of God's love for his people and God's provision for his people. God had done so much for them, but they didn't appreciate it. And anything bad that happened, it wasn't their fault. God, it's your fault. Even the religious leaders were asking, acting like this. They were becoming arrogant. They were becoming entitled. They were becoming rebellious. And in turn, that despised God's name. And they asked, though, God, how have we despised your name? I love what God says here. He says, as a general rule, children honor their father, right? As a general rule, a servant honors his master or boss, right? And God says, well, I'm your heavenly father, and I'm the creator of everything. Where is my honor? Where's my respect? And again, ironically, it was the religious leaders that were the most irreverent, even doing blasphemous things in the name of God. Now that brings us to this point. Leaders should be held to a higher standard. Why? Because the Bible says so. The misuse of power, especially in God's name, make God's, makes God exceptionally angry. As we get into the New Testament, Jesus said, it is better for you to kill yourself than to mislead a child, to lead a child astray. Some people believe that's literal children. Other people believe that is spiritual children. Either way, it shows that the misuse of power is extremely frustrating and irritating and even makes God angry to the point where he says, I would rather you kill yourself. Jesus said that? Yes. He said, it's better to tie a millstone around your neck and jump in a lake than to mislead people, to abuse your power. And Christian leaders are held to a high level of accountability. That's why the Bible says not many people should become teachers because those people will be held to a higher standard. Now listen, we're still humans, we're still gonna make mistakes, but every weekend, I'm talking about me, I get in front of 4,000 people at this church, Brooker gets in front of 500, Dave gets in front of 100 right now, we get in front of a lot of people, and we teach you the word of God, and God's gonna hold me responsible for what I say, because poor leadership hurts a lot of people. If I were to ask you in this room, 
How many of you have been hurt by Christian leaders? I bet 90% of you would raise your hand. Those of you old enough to remember the times in the 80s and 90s when these televangelists were using money to get prostitutes and drugs and stealing all kinds of money from the church and all these evil things. Man, that stuff makes God furious. And in our day and age, we still do this. This is a way a Christian swears, half donkey. God commanded his people to give him their best. (laughs) Give me a second. I'm probably going to end up swearing for real because I'm going to get all riled up. But God commanded his people to give him their best, but the priests were offering blind, crippled, and diseased animals for their sacrifices, and they were keeping the best for themselves. Guys, can I be a jerk here for a second talking about half-donkeyed approaches? I love this part where God says, why don't you try taking that stuff to your governors? So it's like, man, here we go. I'm sorry, guys, forgive me. It's like when you consistently show up to church 45 minutes late. Try doing that at work. Try doing that when you have traffic court. Sorry, judge, I'm 45 minutes late. Thanks for waiting for me. Well, Corey, that's my income. I know, this is just your soul. But that's what we do, isn't it? It's kind of this half-donkeyed approach. It's this thing of, well, you know, I'll make it when it's convenient. If the game's not on, if I don't have anything else to do, I'll pray if I have some extra time. And the Bible says, give God your first fruits. Give him your best. That's how we're going to live the best life that we can. That's how we're going to have the best relationship with him and other people. But what we do is we tend to give God our fractions, our leftovers, while we keep the best for ourselves. Not only is it disrespectful, it's selfish, and it's not really being a Christian. But that's what we do. It's just the remnants of what we have. If I have time, I'll get to God, right? Try doing that with your wife. Try doing that with your husband. See how those relationships work out. But that's what we do. And have we fallen to this in the United States? My God, of course we have. We've become an entitled people. And I'm gonna put a lot of blame on churches. Man, churches have watered down the gospel. We have made church materialistic. It's feel good, it's fake. There's a bunch of guys that are just entertainers that call themselves pastors. And that's why the American faith is falling apart. But listen, before we just take shots at pastors, you guys have access to the same book that I have access to. So if you hear all these jokers teaching a bunch of fake gospels, we should be reading these things for ourselves, this book for ourselves, saying that's not accurate. So we're all guilty in this room. We call ourselves one nation under God, which is a load of crap. The state that has the best church attendance in the United States is Mississippi, and it's 44%. One nation under God? I don't think so. At least not this God. So we keep saying that, and we keep hiding behind it, but it's false. It is fake. We have failed to teach scripture. We have failed to pray. We have turned our back on sexual sin and immorality. We've become materialistic and selfish and irreverent. It's not about God, it's about us. We walk into churches, I'll give this one a three. That's what we do. It's not about what we can give to God. It's not about coming and worshiping him. It's not about digging deeper. It's how can you serve me? How can you serve me? And God says, I'd rather you shut the doors. That's what he says. God says, I'd rather one of you shut the doors than do this half-hearted approach. And so he says, well, you're misleading others. You're disrespecting his name. 
God would rather, and maybe that's why so many churches in the United States are shutting their doors. God would rather stop the fake and selfish facade and, and rather to keep falsely believing that we're righteous by our apathetic works. This whole idea of, well, God loves us, so we're all gonna go to heaven. I don't think the Bible supports that. We have to be in a relationship with him. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you're profaning it. When you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food, is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord. You bring stolen, lame, and sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord. The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. So one day everyone is gonna recognize him. God knew this, of course. Though at this time his chosen people were not honoring him, God knew that because of the people in Israel, the entire world would know who he is. They would be introduced to the truth. We also see at the end of the Bible that everyone is going to recognize God. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved, but everyone at one point is going to recognize who Jesus Christ is. God's objectives, listen, God's objectives are going to be accomplished whether we're on board or not on board, but I advise us we should be on board. We should want to be doing what God wants us to do. We should want to be a part of his plan. But our problem is it's an inconvenience for us. Look at what God says. Man, God gets all kinds of sassy in this book of the Bible, doesn't he? God says, you guys say, look, this is a nuisance. Our faith is a nuisance. Treating our faith like it's some kind of mundane thing that it's an obligation, it's an inconvenience. Man, imagine again looking at your spouse and saying, man, this whole relationship with you is kind of a nuisance. Again, what would that do? But that's how God feels about us when we take a half-hearted approach to our faith. So let's put on our honesty cap for a second. All of us in this room, let's be honest. I'll be honest. Sometimes this becomes a job. Sometimes I don't wanna be here. Sometimes I don't wanna be around you. Sometimes I don't wanna be around people in general. When I go eat lunch, sometimes I go to the most remote, weird places because I wanna sit by myself. And sometimes it becomes an obligation. It becomes a nuisance. But that's not okay. I need to snap out of that. How many of you in this room, it becomes a nuisance to have to be here every single week? Maybe that's why the average Christian in the United States goes to church once a month. Do you know that's why we have to do announcements four times? Because it's in the hopes that you'll hear it one time if you show up on time. Because the average Christian comes to church 25% of the time. Barna Research Group says that because we find it a nuisance, right? It's an inconvenience to all the other things we have to do. Do I have to read my Bible? Do I have to pray? We have a 40-day fast coming up, which I really hope you do, but man, Corey, that's, that, that's like such a big deal, right? I can't possibly give up sweets for 40 days or meat for 40 days. I can't possibly do these things. It's too much of an inconvenience. 
So if we're being honest with ourselves, how do we view the Christian walk? Is it just kind of a mundane thing that gets in the way sometimes? And with followers of God like this, it's no wonder that we have ended up in the place that we have. With the kind of corrupt leaders that they had back then and the kind that we have now, with the apathetic congregants that they had back then and that we have right now, not you guys, that's not what I'm talking about. They give defiled sacrifices. They look at their faith as an irritation. It's no wonder that the nation was broken. And again, our current culture is remarkably similar. We have such poor Christian leadership. We have such apathetic Christians. Like what Paul said to Timothy, there's gonna come a time when people only wanna hear things that are pleasant. They're only gonna wanna go where it's comfortable. You know, I keep saying this. People don't really want pastors. They want motivational speakers because a pastor sometimes has to poke you with his stick, right? Sometimes a pastor has to kind of like nudge you in a certain direction. We don't want that. We just want people to tell us how good we are. And that's why we've ended up with the culture that we have. And verse 14 says that the deceiver is cursed. The one that believes these lies, lives these lies, is cursed. Now we need to be careful with the word cursed. This isn't like a witchcraft cursed. This simply means that they're doomed to fail. That if we continue going down the road that we're going down, we're doomed to fail. And so we think we can somehow pull one over on God, right? If I get enough Christian tattoos, if I get enough stickers on my car, if I wear enough experienced community t-shirts, if I post enough Instagram pictures of my Bible next to a bagel, if I do all these things, I can somehow trick God to believing that I'm a really, really good Christian. But God sees our hearts. It's a scary thought, isn't it? And God sees, we may pull the wool over everyone else's eyes that we're friends with on Facebook, but God sees deeper than that, doesn't he? The end of this chapter, though, believe it or not, is positive, and it says that God is a great king. What that means is this. Listen, God invites all of us to be on his side. We talk about finding God. God is not the one that's lost or missing, right? God is always right there. It says, I cannot escape the passage. I've been using it every single week almost for probably two months. That Jesus knocks on the doors of our heart, right? God's present. He knows exactly where we are, exactly what we're doing. And he's knocking on the door. It's us that need to respond. And so the end of this says, he's a great king. He's gonna be known through all the nations. He is going to win. And we have the opportunity to be on his side. But we have to choose that. But here's what a lot of us do. A lot of us get frustrated with Christianity. We get frustrated with our relationship with God because we don't see that we get much of a return sometimes. The problem, though, is not with God. The Bible says that if we draw near to him, look at this, if we draw near to him, a deposit, it says that he will draw near to us. But if there's no deposit, there's no return, right? No deposit, no return. So what God is doing is he is patiently waiting on us. He is patiently waiting on us, listen, not to be perfect, not to be saved by the good things we do. We can't be saved by the good things we do. God is just waiting on us to want to have a relationship with him. God is waiting on us to want to change and be better. God is waiting on us to want to save our relationships and our marriages God is waiting on us to want to be closer to him. 
And when it comes to the Christian life, we will only get something out of this if we give God everything. God, you can have it all. All of it is yours. But we often blame God, don't we? But if we were being honest, let's talk about finances. Because in chapter three of Malachi, we're all gonna get offended by what the Bible says about money. But let's talk about finances. When people come up and they say, Corey, can you pray for my finances? The first question I'm gonna ask you if you come up and tell me to pray for your finances, are you trusting God with your finances, with your tithes and offerings? Well, no, I'm not. Then I can't pray for you, I'm sorry. Because if you don't give it to God, God can't bless it. God can't do anything with it. It's the same thing with your marriage. Corey, can you pray for my marriage? Are you loving her like Christ loves you? Are you respecting him like Ephesians 5 says? No, sorry, I can pray for you all day long, but until you do what the word tells you to do, I can't pray for you to be blessed, I'm sorry. We have to give our marriages to God. We have to give our finances to God. We have to give our families to God. We have to give our struggles and our insecurities, whatever it is to God. And until we do that, we can't expect God to do anything with it. God's a gentleman that stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't kick his way in. He's waiting for us to respond. He's waiting for us to want to do better. But honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, have we given God 100%? What kind of offerings and sacrifices do we bring God? And I'm not talking about money right here. I'm talking about you. Do we read our Bible when we have absolutely nothing else to do, right? You're sitting in the airport and you're like, I think I still have that Bible app. I'll read a scripture today. Wow. What sacrifices and offerings do we bring to God? Are we sincere? Are we apathetic? Do we somehow believe this Southern Christian lie that if we show up at a building once a week that we're saved? Do we believe that? I don't think it's biblical, but maybe you can prove me wrong on that. I don't think you can, but are we apathetic to our faith? Has the Christian walk even become a burden? Has it become a nuisance to us? <sighs> it's Sunday morning again. No, it's Saturday night again. Another worship night, another time I have to serve. Gotta read the Bible, Corey said so, right? Has it become a nuisance? Has it become an obligation? Have we become entitled? I didn't say this at the other two services, but I think we often forget God owes us nothing. Nothing. In this whole relationship, he doesn't really gain anything from us, right? He's perfect by himself. The Holy Trinity of God, Father, Son, Spirit. God even has perfect community without us. It's bad theology when people say, well, God made us because he was lonely. Nope, not true. We are here because it's an overflow of how perfect and beautiful God is. Now we have humanity. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't owe us anything. I think we forget that sometimes. God, look at me down here. God's been looking at you your entire life. God's been looking at you before you were even knit together in your mother's womb, the Bible says. God knows where you are, and he wants what's best for you, but he doesn't owe us anything, anything. So do we believe we can somehow like pull one over on God? Do we believe that we can somehow fix our lives ourselves? Do we think that we can somehow make better decisions without talking to him first? The big question is this. Listen, the next time we see each other, it'll be 2020. Who knew we would make it this long, right? The next time we see each other, it will be a new year. Here's the thing, and I'm not even talking about you, I'm talking about me. The big thing that I think God is giving me right now as I go into a new year is I think God is asking Corey, and maybe he's asking some of you, 
Corey, will you be humble this year? Will you completely trust me? Will you give me everything? Will you submit to whatever I want you to do? And I feel like God is telling me, I don't know if he's telling you, but I feel like God is telling me, Corey, if you will humble yourself, I'll take care of you. I'll show you the way to go. I'll show you what to say and what to do and how to lead your family, how to lead your church, all those things. I'll I'll show you, but you have to humble yourself. Guys, I'm gonna get all preachy for a second. Do you know what some of us need to do? You're gonna think I'm a quack, but I was saved in a Pentecostal church, so here it comes. Some of us need to literally get on our faces before God. Literally. I'm not talking about metaphorically. Some of you need to go to a room in your house or you can come here. You're welcome to come here in the morning. We'll open up the sanctuary for you. Come here. Go to your house. Go somewhere. And I think some of us need to literally lay on our faces and remember who we have a relationship with. It is God. But here's the thing. If we will just approach him with humility, if we will approach him with submission, God, you're God, I'm just the creation. What do you want me to do? If we would find ourselves in that posture, you will be blown away with what God will do with you. Blown away. And listen, I got a couple of minutes and I'm not trying to be political or controversial or anything. Mark my words, 2020 is going to be a storm. There's a word that I thought of before that, but you can't say that either, that's bad. (laughs) But it is, you watch. 2020 is gonna be a mess. It's an election year. It's already a mess and we haven't even got into that yet. People are gonna be hating each other and there's gonna be so much venom shot from both sides and our nation's gonna be at each other's throat. There's gonna be so much of this. We're gonna need the Lord in 2020. We're gonna need to be humble in 2020. We're gonna need to be the light in 2020. We need to be leading our families well and our communities well and our relationships well. We've got to submit to him. And regardless of what happens next year, we have to remember that God still sits on the throne, that he's still in charge. Will we be humble this year? Or or will we continue to go the way that we think we should go, right? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and you are not a believer, I hope you don't ever feel embarrassed or or uncomfortable. I'm glad you're here. If you have any questions, up here on my right, your left, Greg is our executive pastor. He's up here at the front. If you have any questions for Greg, he's got a button-up shirt on glasses. If you have any questions for him, please come up here and talk to him. He would love to talk with you. We're not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of hard questions. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything, come up here and let one of these men or women pray for you. All around this room, we also have communion. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, all around the perimeter of this room, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the the wine. Everyone is welcome to take that, to remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but the Bible says we have to repent before we do that. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, during communion, that's a really good time to humble yourself. We remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent, as the book of Romans says, even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That should humble us. 
That should make us remember what our place is in the universe. We are the creations of the creator God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We should humble ourselves to that, submit ourselves to that. And if we do, God will bless us. If we don't, though, we're on our own. And we don't want to be on our own. It's a bad place to be. God, I love you. I thank you. I love you so much for letting me be a part of this church. God, I love this church. This is a good church, God. These are people that love your word. These are people that serve. These are people that give. This is a good church, God. Don't let us forget why we do what we do. Don't let us grow apathetic. Don't let us grow complacent or irreverent or arrogant, God. Lord, this is such a good body of believers. Lord, just continue to sharpen us. Continue to grow us. Continue to groom us, God. Lord, bless the families in this room. Bless the marriages in this room. Bless the single people in this room, God. Bless the students. Bless the, 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 the parents, God. Everyone in this room, Lord. Keep your hand on us, Lord. We love you and we thank you, God. And I pray that 2020 is a landmark year, God, for your kingdom, Lord. We love you and we thank you and pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.